I want to invite you to turn in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians. This morning we come to 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5. If you're visiting this morning, you may as well know that this is part of an ongoing series. We've been working our way through this epistle of Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, which he wrote to a very young church, a church that had just been planted. And the purpose of the epistle was to help lay a good foundation for them. And for that reason, it has perennial value. When we read this book, we are hearing all of the basics that make for a vibrant, a healthy congregation. So we've been working through this, and now we are coming towards the end of the letter. And in this final segment that we've been in for a couple of weeks now, the apostle packs in all of these little exhortations. A bunch of little exhortations. It almost feels as if he's coming to the end of the physical piece of papyrus that he's writing on and starts writing smaller and packing it in. And this morning, we're going to see an exhortation which comes in a segment related to practicing peace in the church, though immediately it won't be so obvious. We'll come to that. Let's hear the word of God beginning at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Spirit dwells among us. Indeed, Christ by his Spirit is with us and honors our gathering with his power. We ask that this morning, he who is the eternal word would work through the written word and the preached word. That you who have power to raise the dead would raise in us more and more the life of Christ. That we would be conformed to his image. That we would have his love. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant repentance where necessary. And strong hope in order that we would serve you. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen. Think with me for a moment about the decisions that you make on a daily basis. Think with me about the whole number of decisions that you make where the Bible does not provide explicit direction for what you are to do. Which is not to say that the Bible doesn't give us guidelines. The Bible speaks to all of life. But God has not revealed his will explicitly in every different circumstance. For instance, how long should two people get to know one another before they enter into marriage? Well, according to the Bible, it will be some time in between the amount of time that Adam and Eve knew one another and the time between Christ is united with his church in glory. It doesn't tell us. And that can be scary to not have clear understanding about God's explicit will. It requires wisdom. How many of your dollars should you put toward 
retirement versus charitable giving. The Bible does not tell us explicitly. It requires sanctified wisdom. The Bible does tell us not to be gluttons. But at what point exactly do you go from the enjoyment, the legitimate enjoyment of food, into the place where we have displeased God in the use of his creation? Just yesterday, I went to a Mexican restaurant. Whether you come and it's five people or whether you come by yourself, they bring you the big basket of chips. And then after you have consumed the entire basket, what do they do? The waiter comes and says, would you like more? They do not ask you whether it's wise. (laughs) The Bible puts you in a position to have to use sanctified wisdom. But sometimes the Bible does speak explicitly. And when it does, listen up. Because those places where it's explicit act as painted lines on the road. You can drive relatively safely between them. If you venture out of those lines, you know you are veering into danger. And in the passage before us this morning, the Lord speaks explicitly. He tells us, this is God's will for you. And for that reason, we need to understand God's will in this passage, what it means to walk in gratitude toward him at all times. And then we need to see how that connects to the broader idea here of living at peace with others, especially with the church of God. So these are the things that the Lord brings before us this morning, and we're going to look at this passage under those two main headings. First, we are going to examine the exhortation in this passage to give thanks in all circumstances, and then we are going to explore the connection between that and peace. Now, I want you to look with me at verse 16 as we begin the first heading to examine what it is we're called to here. Here together again, the words of this exhortation. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. How many exhortations are there? Three, seemingly. But I submit to you the most important thing that you can grasp at this point about this passage is that these are not three entirely distinct, unrelated exhortations. Sometimes people read them and try to apply them as if they're unrelated. Sometimes they are preached as if they are unrelated. There will be a sermon on one, the next, and the other. But I do not believe within the context that is what is happening. We need to read these and understand these together. Think about an object, a physical object that has three dimensions, length, width, height. If you take away any of those dimensions, the object loses its fullness, becomes flattened. Throughout the Psalms, these three terms, rejoicing, thanksgiving, and prayer, occur in close connection together over a hundred times. Together, not separate, but together, they represent some of the fullness of living and experiencing the presence of God. They are intended to be together, not separate. For instance, Psalm 97, verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. What we're called to here is something integrated and something that is directed toward the Lord. I want you to focus in particular for a moment on the word rejoice. 
rejoice. Often the first thing that comes to mind is the feeling of rejoicing, and then maybe immediately after that, the realization that we are not experiencing that feeling. And so we feel that rejoicing is something you do when you have the right feeling. But here it's a verb. It's called an imperative verb. It's a command. It's a command to celebrate that which is good. To celebrate that which is good. And specifically, it's in the context, again, Paul's drawing on the Psalms. He's a Jew raised in the Psalms. It's about celebrating God and his blessings, his being and his benefits. And so the call here in the first place, rejoice always, is to intentionally dedicate yourself to celebrating the truths that we know concerning the Lord, who he is and what he has done. Now, I think all of us are aware of something. It's possible to have joy over a thing. And it's possible to be thankful for a thing without addressing our joy and thanks personally to the one who is responsible. Children, you are familiar with what I'm saying. Sometimes your parents do kind things for you. You are obviously happy, but you forget to say thank you. And then you grow up and you discover adults are the same way. Very often we forget to address our rejoicing specifically to the ones responsible. But you notice beyond the word rejoice always, Paul adds two other instructions here. These two additional phrases highlight the God word direction of our gratitude. You see the phrases pray, well that's obviously directed to God, and then give thanks to God. And so it's not simply about telling one another the things that we are grateful to God for. In this passage, God's will for you is to direct it to him. One exercise in getting at a passage, something you can do in your private study of the Bible, is at times to rearrange the order of the words. You have to be careful not to make them lose their meaning and sense, but sometimes changing the order can actually clarify the sense as well. Hear this reordered version of the text Because this lays the emphasis on to whom it is being given. In all circumstances, God's will for you in Christ is to pray to him with rejoicing and thanks. Listen up. Again, when God tells us his clear will, listen up. Because so many things in life are not clear. But here he tells you plainly. His will is for you to direct your rejoicing, your thanks to him in prayer and at all times. And this brings us then to perhaps the most difficult aspect of this text. Those words, in all circumstances. I have not experienced all circumstances But some of the ones I have experienced have been incredibly painful. I'm sure the same is true for you. Some of them have been particularly humiliating or very frustrating, maddening. And yet, it says that we are to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks 
in all circumstances. Candidly, there are some situations where to read this in a certain way, it would seem incomprehensible, callous to rejoice. Take discovering that maybe you're a school teacher and you come to learn that one of the students is experiencing abuse in the home. How can you rejoice with them in all circumstances? How do they rejoice in that circumstance? Or you're reading through the news, which is always, I was going to say a mistake, it's a double-edged sword. You want to be informed, but the world that we live in will always inform you that it's broken. And just the other day, I was interested in some item or another, and I looked it up online, and what came up instead of the item that I was considering purchasing was some news report saying that that company who makes it had been implicated in the slave labor situation in China. And then I feel, if I buy it, now I'm a terrible person, I'm participating in slave labor. I say that not as a joke, it really is, it's a weighty thing where you discover not just, oh, I'm a bad person, You know, am I bad? Forget that. Lay that aside. It's not about you at this moment. It's about the person in that situation who is apparently millions of people in slave labor, forced labor in China and other situations in the world. How do they rejoice in all circumstances? There are Christians there too. And this is where it's so critical to make the connection, the particular words that are being used in this passage. Look at me at verse 18. The apostle, led by the Spirit, says, give thanks in all circumstances. The word translated in here is a very simple preposition. It has to do with the location of a thing, where it is in relation to other things. He doesn't say so much, give thanks for the sinful thing or the evil thing in itself. There is a sense in which We are always displeased with the reality of sin. Christ came to put an end to the brokenness of this world, and it will be brought to an end. So it doesn't say in one sense, give thanks for the sins and the evils involved in circumstances. But there is a sense in which we give thanks amid all these circumstances. And that has to do with our understanding of some things that don't change. God's being and attributes do not change. They're not going anywhere. It has to do with our knowledge of how he uses these things. The conviction that they are purposed providentially for our good. And these are things that we're being drawn to here, especially through the words in verse 18, in Christ. That we thank God in Christ in light of our covenant union with him in light of the promises that belong to us in him. There's another passage that really develops this. I invite you to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to turn, 1 Peter chapter 1. Because in that section, Peter is laying out reasons to rejoice that transcend the circumstances of this life. And in two units of text, he basically first points out that our salvation is unshakable, and then he points out that God tailors 
our experiences so that they don't exceed what he will grant us by his spirit to endure. And in fact, he works good through them. Verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there you have him rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I pray that sometimes. I I hope you do too. When you are struggling with a particular sin and you are grieved, I, I did what I was called to on Tuesday and then Wednesday I didn't, Thursday I did, Friday I didn't. There's a lot of variation. One thing didn't change. You were born again sometime before that. You're born again. And he who began a good work in you shall complete it to the end. You've been begotten with an imperishable seed. And you call that before you because that doesn't change. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. By God's power being guarded. People go out sometimes, they buy a dog specifically to guard their home or their property. And they try to look for the biggest, meanest, nastiest, ugliest dog they can find. And then some of them, I'm sure, have discovered that in spite of its appearance, certain dogs are just cowards. They have no desire to guard their home or property. Our salvation is guarded by God himself. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, he will see you through to the end. That's something you rejoice in because your circumstances change. The covenant does not change. Verses 6 through 9, see how he goes on. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice the words necessary, if necessary. They do not look that way. You can't expect your trials to look necessary. It can be something extremely small. You were late in waking up for church. You're getting ready and you're already expecting to to come a little late. And as you go to button your shirt, the button pops off. It was your favorite shirt. It feels so unnecessary, completely pointless. That was providential. It doesn't mean that you can probe the specific meaning, but you have to accept all things are in God's hand. The Lord will use this maybe to help me treat my Saturdays differently to wake up earlier, maybe to rethink my clothing choices. I don't know. But it's necessary. You wouldn't be going through it, according to the word, if God had not purposed it for our good. It says, verse 7, so that by the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it makes me wonder if the purpose of even that little button popping off was an opportunity for you to exhale and say, I am so glad that the Lord has called me to bigger things than worrying about this. That I was called from eternity to be an heir with Jesus Christ. 
that I am not defined by this present clothing, but by the righteousness of my Savior that right now is counted to me, but in glory will move through me in such a way that I will live as righteously as him. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so this is God's clear will for you, that you would continually be in a state of bringing before him your gratitude for who he is and for what he's promised and for how he is blessing you, how he shall bless you. This is God's clear will for us. Now, before we can move to the second, the final heading, I want you to recall again where this passage fits within the epistle. It fits within a smaller unit. That unit has to do with living at peace with God's people especially. It begins at verse 13 where it says, Be at peace among yourselves. It concludes at verse 23 and 24 where it says the God of peace will surely do it. So now you have this little unit on gratitude standing within a segment having to do with living at peace with others. What is the connection? I put it to you as a question. What is it about living in a state of prayerful gratitude that in some way relates to living in harmony and uh, ongoing reconciliation with others, especially in the body of Christ. This brings us to our second main heading to explore this connection. Think to yourself. You can reflect on your own experience. I'm confident if you're hearing me and you know my words at all, even if you are three years old, even if you don't know the words I mean, I know you've experienced this. What happens when you keep talking to yourself angry words? What happens when you keep up a monologue of malcontent, of complaining, of misery? This is not hypothetical. This is real. This is every single one of us at different times. What happens in your heart when you keep telling yourself everything that you are not thankful for? Imagine blowing on coals and they begin to light up. Our words, this is just part of the way God has made us, our words, our ability to verbalize, to speak, have a way of blowing upon the embers of our emotions. And when you speak to yourself, your anger, the tendency is to become even more angry. When you recite to yourself your grief, you tend to become more aggrieved. Conversely, when you speak to yourself, the truth of God's grace, when you recite to yourself that which is true and good and beautiful about him, about who you are in Christ, the tendency is to become more and more at peace with where you are in this world. That doesn't mean approving of the sins of others and of the fallen condition of the world. It means understanding and rejoicing That even amid this, God has not failed. God is faithful 
and that he's making use of things. This then affects your ability to be at peace with others. When you are at peace with God's purposes, then you can begin to practice peace with other people. Let me give you an analogy. I'll acknowledge from the outset, this is not everyone's analogy, but it does drive home something of how this works. Take an ordinary car, typical car. For clarity, I'm going to say a 2011 Nissan Versa manual, my car. And now, imagine this car is driving down the road. The car does fine on most roads, smooth roads. But now what happens, as I have done, if you take that same car to our annual campouts, drive it down bumpy roads, dirt roads, some roads that have big rocks, some roads that have holes, it does not do as well. And then, what if... One of the two front wheels, it's a front wheel drive vehicle. What if one of the two front wheels drops into a hole and now it's free spinning? What's going to happen? This may be more than you bargained for this morning, but I'll tell you that most cars, and certainly my car, have what's called an open differential in the front. That means that the way the axle works, the two wheels can spin independently at different speeds at the same time. And that wheel that's in the hole, free spinning, is going to get all the torque when you put the gas down. It's going to get all the energy. The one on the road is going to sit there. And so you're going to be stuck. Conversely, now let's imagine you're in a different vehicle, one that has a locking differential. When the differential is locked, it makes the axle as if it's just one solid piece. And that means the two wheels are going to turn, they have to turn, at the same speed. This matters. This same car is going down the road, or a different car, it's got the the locking differential, a wheel falls into the hole. Now, because they have to turn at the exact same speed, the wheel that's on the ground will get all the torque, all the twisting power, and it's going to muscle the whole car forward. It doesn't matter that one of the wheels wasn't getting any traction. That's the beauty of a locking differential. It can pull this car out of the hole. Take an everyday person, an average person. Take me when I am not being spiritually minded, walking in gratitude intentionally toward the Lord. And what happens? Most of the time, you're doing fine when you're on smooth roads. But then you go down bumpy circumstances and you fall into the circumstantial hole got a wheel in the hole and that wheel on the left is the wheel that determines your emotions on the basis of fleshly thinking and it has nothing to gain traction by it's just spinning spinning the more you lay on the gas the more it's getting worked up you're not going anywhere in your ministry and this is what happens you if you think in a worldly a fleshly of this age mindset Then when you interact with people, not out of a spirit of gratitude towards God, but with lack of thankfulness, then that person who upsets you in some way, who causes pain or displeasure, that person is depleting your very finite resources of perhaps less than 80 years of enjoyment. How dare they? You can't get that back. They wasted an hour of your life. And relative to your dwindling resources, 
That's a big deal, and you're angry at them. They are the adversary. But what gratitude before the Lord does is it locks you into a mindset based on who he is and based on his promises. And that transfers energy from the age to come, from those promises by the Spirit to our present circumstance. Where you can say, Lord, imagine before you're dealing with that person, Lord, I am so thankful that I have an unlimited, everlasting hope of glory before me. And I thank you that you put me on this earth as a recipient of mercy, as a sinner forgiven by grace alone through Christ alone, and that you've given me an opportunity to minister to other sinners, and that out of the abundance of your blessings, I have something to give to them. Thank you, Lord. And then you're in that situation, and even though the circumstance is miserable, yet there is this knowledge, God has purpose. He has purpose. And that person is no longer an adversary. They are an object of ministry, of mercy. And that person isn't stealing something you can never give back because you've got plenty. The Lord is providing for you everything good. When you walk in a spirit of prayerful gratitude, then this transfers the energy of God through faith into your life. It's how we lay hold of these precious promises. How we walk in the power and the strength of the gospel. And in that way, we gain traction to get along with other people. That's the connection laid before us here. That's why this is stuck in this section here. The apostle, led by the Spirit, understands what it takes for a church to get along with itself and in the world. And of course, these same things apply in the body at large. Before closing, I want to share with you something that I received this week. Not really to read something, but to share with you information. And we'll actually pray for this brother, one of our brothers, Reverend Greg Lubbers. He's another minister in the URCNA. He's in between calls right now. He was just called from his church to become the pastor at another church. He has not begun that work yet. He's supposed to take that up this week or next week. And he was just diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he notified all of us, asked for prayer. He was told that on a scale of 10, the complications of this surgery are about an 8. Please pray for him. He goes in for that on Monday. But he shared something about how even in the midst of this, he's discovering afresh how thankful he is that he has certainty regarding his salvation. He has confidence that his family will be taken care of by the Lord. He's thankful for now two communities that want to surround his family in any circumstance. And he shared this quote, from Charles Spurgeon. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Here's a man who is looking at his mortality, and he could be so angry if he looked at it as if he were owed and is being deprived. 
He will never say it about himself, but I'll say he bears evidences of the things we're talking about, of being transformed, not perfectly, but substantially and truly, by the call to walk with thankfulness. And our prayer should be, God, form this in me. Remember, this comes in a segment which at the very end says, God is faithful, he will surely do it. And so the purpose of a sermon like this is not to say simply, go try harder, you ungrateful people. It is to say, God who calls you to this wants you to lay your whole weight of faith upon his power to produce this in you. And then in advance, to rejoice and look forward to the way that that in turn shapes this whole church to be a people of peace together. Why don't we ask God to do that even now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are abundantly merciful to us in giving us such words of promise. We confess before you, Lord, that we are often gutters of ingratitude and the things that flow through our hearts and sometimes our mouths are so polluted with negativity and spite and bile. And you are better than this. We confess before you, we don't want to continue this way. We ask for your Holy Spirit who began this work in us to continue it, to strengthen us. We pray that you would increase our faith to trust that you will surely increase in us a spirit of gratitude and prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray on behalf of any here who may not yet know you, that you would please bring them to the joy of this knowledge. Please help them, Lord, by your spirit. Not only help them, but cause them to cast themselves upon your promise to receive all who look to you. Give them this same everlasting hope. We thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word this morning. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.